that going to be? Hold on. Oh, yes. Hold on. Oh, no, yes. I don't believe it. Yes, you oh, may. No. I've never seen the likes of it. Okay. Golf trivia time. And if you know the game reasonably well, this should be easy. Name the journeyman golfer who forced Tiger Woods to make a 72nd hole birdie to get into a playoff in the 2000 PGA Championship. If you guessed Bob May, that's correct. This will always be Bob May's legacy. He will always be the answer to a trivia question and a golf folk hero, but not for any of his victories on the PGA Tour. He never had any of those. It's all based on what he did one steamy August afternoon in Louisville, Kentucky. May was 31 years old at the time, and it was just his fourth major championship appearance. When he made that 15-foot double-breaking birdie putt on the 72nd hole of the tournament, the one that prompted that yes you may that you heard earlier, May put himself on the brink of an all-time upset, like a Francis We Met level upset. But Tiger wasn't finished. He needed to answer with a downhill six-footer for a birdie of his own. Make it, and there's a three-hole playoff. Miss it, and Bob May is the most unlikely major champion. Oh. What a putt. Woods, already a winner of two straight majors that summer, would go on to win the three-hole playoff by a single shot. He'd also go on to win his next two starts, and he'd win his fourth straight major at the 2001 Masters to complete the Tiger Slam, and 57 more PGA Tour events, and nine more major championships after that. Bob May, meanwhile, he never won another professional golf tournament of any significance. 20 years later, Woods is the reigning Masters champion, still a contender in the biggest events, and still, by far, the biggest star in this sport. May, on the other hand, he spends the majority of his time giving lessons in Las Vegas, hoping to Monday qualify his way onto the Champions Tour. How does that happen? How does a player go toe-to-toe with maybe the greatest golfer of all time, then disappear into the abyss right after? If Bob May was so good that week at Valhalla, why wasn't he that good more often? Is it physical? Mental? Luck? In golf, we spend so much time discussing why players are so great. We don't spend nearly as much time discussing why some guys never make it past being just really damn good. I'm Daniel Rappaport, and this is Local Knowledge, the Golf Digest podcast that takes a deep dive into the most compelling stories in the world of golf. Today's episode will focus on the minuscule difference between the greatest players in the world and the simply very good ones. Later this week at TPC Harding Park in San Francisco, 18 club professionals, guys who give lessons and fold shirts most of the year, they'll tee it up against the best tour pros in the world at the 102nd PGA Championship. Now, on the surface, their games don't look too different. If you walk down the driving range and somehow turned off your ability to recognize Rory McIlroy and Brooks Kepka and the rest of the tour pros, you probably wouldn't even be able to tell who's a top 100 player in the world and who's just really good at running a member guest. The margins in this sport, they're all-time small. So what separates the best, the guys who make millions, from the guys who don't? Or, in other words, why do some players become, never mind Tiger Woods, but Charles Howell III or Kevin Kisner? And why do some guys never make it past the mini-tours or completely fade from relevance or end up becoming club pros? We'll talk to people familiar with the ultra-fine line between golfing greatness and the golfing abyss to try to find out. 
Let's start with what we know about professional golf. We know there are certain unicorns, guys who are always going to be world-class players because they are just that physically gifted. The way Tiger Woods hits his irons is not normal. Phil Mickelson has the best set of hands we've seen in 30 years. Rory McIlroy looks like he was born to drive a golf ball. And this beefed-up version of Bryson DeChambeau is pushing the limit of what we thought was possible. So on one end of the spectrum, we have certain guys who are pretty close to can't miss. And on the other end, there are guys who just aren't good enough. It's plain to see. They hit it too short to be competitive, or they can't hit their long irons high, they can't make downhill left to right putts, or maybe they don't work hard enough, or they don't practice the right way. But that's stuff that's obvious. What's harder to make sense of is the middle ground, the guys who aren't quite unicorns but do have all the shots and do work hard enough. We're trying to identify why some of those non-unicorns turn out to be players like Webb Simpson or Brendan Todd, who didn't exactly impress a former playing partner, Danny Wax, who we'll hear from later. I've played with Brendan Todd when I was on the Nationwide Tour and like, you would think he was a six handicap hitting balls on the driving range. He's not a six handicap. He's a three-time PGA Tour winner who won back-to-back starts last fall. So why do some of these non-unicorns end up being Brendan Todd, while others end up holding an iPhone camera on the far end of a driving range in Las Vegas? Before Bob May was a journeyman, he was the next big thing. Like Tiger, May grew up in Southern California. And like Tiger, he was an absolute force in maybe the most competitive region for junior golf in the country. I, I, I go to a tournament, and uh, I can remember one of my one of the parents that we all traveled together asked me, uh, Bobby, what what score do you think is going to win this tournament? And I and I looked at him and I said, you know, whatever I shoot, it will be what wins. <laughs> and he looked and laughed, but it was the truth. I did. I, I ended up uh, winning the tournament by like four or five shots or six shots. And and that's just the attitude I had. May wound up going to powerhouse Oklahoma State and played on the 1991 Walker Cup team before turning pro. There was no shortage of swagger. Just ask the man himself. I'll tell you, any good player has a little arrogance in them. And I kind of lost that. And you you had that growing up. Yeah, so I had a ton of that growing up. (laughs) When I went in, a lot of the guys I was playing against were my idols. And, you know, I had respect for them. But I, I didn't I didn't go like, hey, I earned my way out here now. I respect them, but you don't have to act like it when you're on the golf course with them. So what happened? How did Bob May go from can't miss junior to journeyman pro to instructor? Well, he's a case study in the first thing any golfer needs to make it big. You need luck on your side. And you only need to see the scars on Bob May's back to see where his luck ran out. My spinal nerve canal genetically is twice as small as a normal man's uh, spinal nerve canal. So any kind of a herniation in my in my back, um, I, I will feel it. It'll feel like a, a ruptured disc, really. You don't find out what a herniated disc feels like unless you've had a herniated disc. Mays had that and then some. His back has been an issue for nearly two decades now. He's had three surgeries on it. The first came back in 2004, the last in 2018. And one of those surgeries was a spinal fusion. 
it's actually, ironically, a similar back injury history to Tiger's. Woods has had four back surgeries, including a spinal fusion. But not everyone is Tiger Woods, and not everyone, heck, hardly anyone can find a way to be competitive, let alone win the Masters when dealing with a back like that. You can't play. You can't. It just it'll it'll wreck you because you're worried about making a swing that you're not trying to irritate the back, but um, you know you need to make a swing to, for the golf shot you're trying to hit, not not to try to prevent pain in your body. And that was something that you were thinking about, I would guess, kind of ever since. Oh, was... I felt it. Yeah, you would feel it. And I was like, oh, boy, oh, boy, you know. Um, yeah, I, I recommend to anybody, don't ever try to play through uh, through the pain. Take time off, get it fixed, and come back, and you'll come back stronger. Let's think about this back injury stuff for a second. Think about all the shots players hit if they want to play this game at an elite level. It's not just the tournaments or the practice rounds or the casual rounds with buddies at home. It's the range sessions when you're working on stuff, the warm-ups before a round. We're talking not just thousands, but probably closer to a million golf shots. Knowing that, maybe the remarkable part isn't that Bob May has had a bad back. It's that more players don't. Sure, some guys take care of their bodies, and they stretch, and they work out the right way, so they stay healthy. But some guys do all of that and still get hurt like Jason Day. Coming off a, a back injury this year, I was warming up on the putting green and I saw my family, so I went down to give my little girl a kiss and my back went out. So that obviously wasn't uh, the greatest start to this Masters. And some guys don't take care of their bodies at all and do stay mostly healthy, like John Daly. I started smoking when I was 19. Smoked for almost 29 years. Um, I smoke about the same as the book, two packs, two, two and a half packs a day. It's almost a genetic lottery, or put differently, luck. Now hindsight, of course, is 2020. May wishes he could have given his younger self that advice that he wouldn't have tried to gut it out while worrying about his back. Because you're going to play worse, and playing worse is going to mess with your confidence, and if you don't have confidence as a golfer, good luck. May finished the year strong in 2000, but didn't record a single top 10 in 2001. Then the back started flaring up in the second half of 2002, and Bob May was never much of a factor again on tour. This episode of Local Knowledge is brought to you by TaylorMade and the all-new Sim Drivers. This year, TaylorMade wanted to find golfers more speed and forgiveness in any way, shape, or form. Well, shape one. So they changed their driver's head shape, which allowed them to make it both fast and forgiving where you need it the most, the downswing. It's called Sim shape in motion and tour players are loving it but the real reason they changed the shape was to help make you better i have one and i love it the all-new sim driver available at your local retailer or at taylormadegolf.com it's not a unique story remember michael campbell or smiley kaufman michelle Wee, david duvall how about jerry pate who had eight wins and a major championship at 28 then started having problems with his shoulder and never won anything after that. You play injured and you start missing cuts. It's a spiral. A spiral that robs you of your swagger. You can't have expectations from other people. Like, you gotta do it for yourself. Alex Beach is trying to find his swagger right now. Beach is, simply put, a phenomenal golfer. He's 31 years old and he's a teaching pro at Westchester Country Club near New York City. 
He also won the PGA National Club Pro Championship last year, shooting a final round 69 to book his ticket to Bethpage Black for last year's PGA Championship. He also won the Assistant Pro National Championship in October. If he's not the best club pro in the nation, he's top three. After a round of 69 and a two-shot victory, congratulations to Alex Beach. Great playing this week. In addition to getting him into the PGA, the National Championship victory guaranteed him six starts in PGA Tour events and a spot in the second stage of Corn Ferry Tour qualifying school, which he got through, shooting 12 under for the four days. If it sounds like Alex Beach is too good to be working a cash register or giving lessons to a 20 handicap, well, he agrees. My goal is certainly to earn full status on tour and to, uh, to play full time. So Beach did what many aspiring tour pros do. He started spending the winter in Jupiter, Florida, to practice full time. This is what you do if you're serious about making it as a tour pro. You move to Florida or Texas or Arizona and you grind all winter. So what did he see when he got there? What were the pros so much better at? What did he need to improve on to have a chance? The honest answer is nothing impressed me. Wow. And what I, what I mean by that is I go and play with these guys. And I'm like, okay. And to your point, like I'm starting to, in my mind, put myself next to them. What are they doing that I'm not? It's like, all right, I hit it just as far, if not further than most of these guys. So check. I can work it both ways. You know, I have a very creative mindset. My short game's pretty good. I can get up and down from just about anywhere. Like, check. Putting is one thing that I know has always been a kind of a shortfall for me, and it's something I've worked very hard at, you know, over the years to get better at. Um, but again, like, when we go out and play just a friendly match, like, I'm there if not beating these guys most of the time. The key phrase there, friendly match. As anyone who has played competitive stroke play golf knows, everything is different when you have to sign a scorecard at the end. Beach also played in the 2017 PJ Championship at Quail Hollow. He shot 17 over for the two days and missed the cut by 12. At Bethpage last year, he missed the cut by 12. In three starts so far this year on the PGA Tour, he's a combined 26 over par and missed the cut by 10 at the Sony Open, 7 at the Farmers Insurance Open, and 11 at the Puerto Rico Open. And remember, this is a guy who hits it just as far as tour pros, can get it up and down from anywhere, and beats these guys when they're playing for fun. So what's missing? I need to take that mentality that I have at the club pro level to the tour level, and everything will be great. In other words, he needs that cockiness. Beach knows when he tees it up in a club pro competition, people notice his name. He's beaten all of them before. He's the guy. He knows if he plays his game, he's going to be right there at the end with a chance to win. And there are guys who feel this way on the PGA Tour. Perhaps the best example is the guy who won that PGA Championship at Bethpage Black, Brooks Kepka. Side note, after two rounds at Bethpage, Kepka was 12 under to Beach's 12 over. He beat him by 24 over two days. Anyways, at his pre-tournament press conference that week, Kepka made a rather bold statement. He said he thinks major championships are the easiest tournaments to win. 156 in the field, so you figure at least 80 of them um, I'm just gonna beat um, from there the other you figure about half of them won't play well from there so you're down to about maybe 35 um, and then from 35 you know some some of them just you know pressure is gonna get to them so it only leaves you with a few more and you just got to beat those guys 
He then opened with 63 and 65, took the tournament by the throat, and won wire to wire. Beach took note of just how confident, how comfortable Kepka was that week. I definitely feel more comfortable at like a PGA National Championship than I do at a PGA Championship solely because it's the event. And that's just that psychological factor that I try like hell to kick, but it's easier said than done. What Alex Beach is trying to bring to tour events, what Brooks Kepka had in spades that week at Bethpage, what Brendan Todd has is belief. Deep, deep belief. Belief is the ultimate. Okay, so I have a, a belief ladder that I work with my players. That's Dr. Brett McCabe, a clinical and sports psychologist who works with a number of professional athletes. His players that he mentioned include John Rahm, Billy Horschel, Graham McDowell, a bunch of others. Belief is the absolute ultimate. And belief is I can go anywhere, anyhow, and do anything I need to. That is formed by confidence. Confidence is I know I can go out there and do the job that I'm being asked to do. Confidence, belief, these are prerequisites if you're going to make it out on tour. It's what allows you to bounce back from an opening double bogey to know that next week will be different, to not freak out when you need a birdie to make the cut, to be unfazed when your playing partner outdrives you by 25 yards, to play smart, to punch out when you hit it in the trees because you know you're going to make birdies later in the round, to block out the leaderboard and just do you. The fact that they're teeing off at 105 and there's a guy that shot nine under doesn't mean anything. He has 54 holes left, you have 72. And, and what I try to get them to understand is like going to Vegas. If you win the first 10 hands you play, you feel like a rock star. The rest of the trip is easy. What happens if you lose the first 10? Is it a bad trip? It's all percentages. So what we want to do mentally is control as many factors as we can of an uncontrollable game. So you first need ability. You need some luck. And you need belief. But what happens if you have all that and you simply don't like it? If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be Right is Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. It seems everyone knows a guy who they thought was a shoe-in to make it on tour. He was the best player at your club, he could shoot 66 with his eyes closed, and if he couldn't make it on tour, then no one could. For me, that guy was Danny Wax. When I was growing up, Danny was the best player at my club and something of a legend in the Los Angeles golf community. He would routinely shoot 64 at courses in the area. He set the course record at our club with a 12 under 60. He had a gorgeous swing, an incredible short game, a perfect putting stroke, and confidence giving birth to confidence. He knew how good he was. Self-confidence is definitely something, you know, probably all golfers that are at a high level, you know, believe in themselves strongly and you know I, I believe in my talents and I think that on a good day I could beat anyone on this planet and I still believe that. After not picking up golf until age 13, Danny was an All-American at the University of Denver, got through Q school, played a couple seasons on what is now the Corn Ferry Tour, and gave it all up to become an app developer. Now he didn't stray too far from the game though. 
his current venture, Four Links, is a golf membership program. And he still plays quite frequently and quite well. To this day, I'll go play with people and, and you shoot five, six, seven, eight under par. And they're like, you should still be on tour. And, you know, my, my response is pretty much the same, is that it's a hobby I'm good at. And, and it's just not, it's not my career path. On the short list of greatest jobs ever, especially if you love golf, a touring pro would have to rank way up there near the top. So why? Why would someone give that up? The opportunity to travel the world playing a sport for millions of dollars? I just wasn't having fun with it. And, you know, when you're not having fun with something that's, you know, your career and you've invested so much time, like, I think that's a pretty clear-cut sign that you should move on and do something else. You know, the enjoyment of it uh, is probably what allows you to succeed uh, at that professional level. You know, if there's guys out there that are hating it, I think that that rubs off it and shows in your game in some fashion. It's not that Danny didn't love competing or making birdies or any of that fun stuff. And Danny will admit that he'd probably have felt differently if he had ever gotten full PGA Tour status and the security that that brings, the ability to make your own schedule and have five or six good tournaments, make your $1.5 million, and keep your card. Now that lifestyle is hard to find fault with. It's getting there that's the problem. For every Jordan Spieth or Matthew Wolf or Colin Morikawa, the guys who bypass the mini-tours completely and find stardom and a PGA Tour card within a year... There are hundreds of guys who have been grinding for years. They're clawing for starts on the Canadian Tour, rolling the dice on the odd Monday qualifier, driving around the South from motel to motel, trying to figure out how you're going to pay for a rental car, a caddy, and still profit at least a little bit for the week. I never dreamt that I would be making four-footers to put food on the table. You know, like, that's not something that I grew up ever even considering. So you need to stay healthy. You need to have that inner belief. And you need to love the grind. Now, those things are, to some extent, within your control. You can eat healthy and work out and stretch, and that'll lower your injury risk. You can read self-help books and work with a sports psychologist, and that should help your mentality on the course. And you can convince yourself that traveling the country is fun, that so many people would kill to be in your shoes, that the ultimate payoff of a PGA Tour card will make all the struggle worthwhile. We talked earlier about luck in the context of your body and avoiding the type of injury that can derail your golf career. But there's another kind of luck, which is exceptional timing. Being in the right place at the right time and playing the right way at that time. A dirty little secret about the PGA Tour is that the hardest part of making it on tour is simply getting on tour. Here's Alex Beach again. Once you're there, they do a pretty good job of protecting themselves to find ways to stay. But yeah, it's just, you know, there's so many guys and, you know, there's stats and and conversations that, you know, the majority of guys on the PGA Tour right now would never be able to Monday into an event. They probably wouldn't get through Q school. They just don't shoot scores that low. The goal then is to crack into the group that protects themselves to get yourself guaranteed starts so you can pick and choose which events you play. Many tour players employ stats guys who tell them which courses and which tournaments fit their games and which ones to stay away from. It's kind of a science. But if you don't have that luxury, you need to take advantage of every opportunity you do get. It only takes one week to change a career. 
Just ask Corey Connors, who Monday qualified into the 2019 Valero Texas Open last spring. And then he made the cut. And then this happened. And Corey Connors' day indeed has arrived. He's a winner on the PGA Tour. That win got him into the Masters, which was the next week. He went from fringe PGA Tour player to a guy who made the Tour Championship and over $3 million for the season, thanks mainly to one huge week. There are plenty more examples like this. Nate Lashley got into last year's Rocket Mortgage Classic as literally the last guy in the field, and he also won. There are way more examples of guys who didn't take their chance or got as close as possible but couldn't quite get over the hump. There's always a guy who misses out on getting his Corn Ferry Tour card or his PGA Tour card by one single shot. It happens every year. Two years ago, on the last day of Corn Ferry Q School, a 35-year-old journeyman named Patrick Sullivan putted his ball into a water hazard and missed a four-footer for birdie on 18 on the last day and missed it by one. Now, he's the assistant golf coach for the Little Rock Trojans. How different would his life be if he didn't put that ball into the water? If he made that four-footer for birdie on 18? And how different would Bob May's life be if Tiger had missed that six-footer on 18? He'd have been a major champion and received a five-year exemption on tour. So when his back started acting up in 2002, he wouldn't have felt any pressure to play through it to keep his card. He wouldn't have lost that confidence. And who knows? Maybe he wouldn't be giving lessons in Las Vegas right now. He'd be gearing up to tee it up as a past champion at TPC Harding Park. Alex Beach has a few more guaranteed starts after the PGA. This week isn't totally make or break for him, but he knows what an opportunity he has. And so do the other 17 club bros who will tee it up this week. These are all guys who will be on the range at Harding Park and if you were there and you watched them hit it, you'd wonder why they weren't playing out there full-time. The answer, as Beach knows, is complicated. There's just so much pressure. And I think, again, the most pressure we put on ourselves to succeed and to play well, and so you maybe try a little harder than you should, and you'd start doing things that you normally wouldn't do. But it's just, you know, it's a lot of out-of-body experiences, but then also you just have to go and play what's likely going to be one of the hardest golf courses of the year. Good luck. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. The music from this episode is called Brain by Lobo Loco. Please subscribe to Local Knowledge on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd also greatly appreciate a review.